good morning, Redeemer. And it is a privilege to be here with you the weekend after Christmas. Whether or not you received what you wanted this Christmas, we hope that you're able to take some time to reflect on what you have already been given that you need this Christmas. And that's just a fancy pastor way of saying that you all need Jesus. So we hope that you remembered your need of him this Christmas season. So here we are now. Uh, Christmas has ended. Uh, Well, not technically, right? It's actually officially started because we are no longer in Advent, but now we are in arrival. We're in arrival. And for the next two weeks, um, I'll be preaching from the Word and we'll be trying to answer this question of what now? Okay, Uh, what now? We've, We've lit the candles. We've waited patiently in Advent, and and now that we've celebrated Christ's arrival at Christmas, how should we live now that Jesus is here? And if you're a Christian who grew up in the church, um, this is something that we we don't think about too much after Christmas, do we? We we look at Scripture, we go, well, Jesus has come, and we look at it and we say, well, Satan's defeated, and he's made atonement for you and I to be reconciled to Christ, uh, so what do I do now? What, what do I do now? Um, but if we notice, and we're going to look at Scripture here over the next two weeks, we'll see something that is, that is, quite frankly, almost hard to believe about the life of Jesus himself. You see, Scripture speaks of the arrival of Jesus, that the incredible things that Christ has done for us, but it also speaks about something that we don't often reflect on, and that is that God is actually calling us to live for him right now, in meaningful, eternal ways. Arrival changes the way that we think about our lives and what the true desires of our hearts look like. Arrival also means that things will never be the same again. So, today we are going to talk about just one of the aspects of Jesus' arrival that changes everything, and that aspect is danger. Danger. Now, I hope that grabbed your attention here, right? Um, This may scare some of you who are danger adverse, but don't worry, we've got some great news for you at the end of the sermon. So, please go ahead, turn, tap, swipe your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. It's also printed in your bulletin. Listen with your ears, read with your eyes, but most importantly, hide these words in your heart as I read today's passage this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together as we ask for him to speak to us. Father, Jesus' arrival changes everything. May we look out for the dangers of our own heart and see the danger that you are calling us to. Lord, to see our lives and to see Christ as they truly are. May your word and your spirit do that here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, arrival. Um, when I think of arrival, I think of the last three years of my life. I've had the privilege of being a dog owner. And our family, you know, by the way, just as a, as a, as a just sort of a, just a backstory, our family was notoriously busy growing up. And so we would, we would have pets, but we would never hold on to them for like any more than like a month or so because we realized like this pet needs a lot of love and my mom and dad were incredibly busy and me and my sister were just incredibly lazy. So my parents were like, we got to give these to more loving families. And, and so I always dreamed about the day when I was an adult and I would actually be able to own a dog of my own. And so, three years ago, on February 14th, 2018, that's right, on Valentine's Day, when I was still a single male, I drove three hours to pick up my dog, Nova. And in case you're wondering, yes, my friends teased me pretty hard that day. Some of them were really concerned about me on Valentine's Day. They were like, do you need us to come over? Do you need us to hang out with you? Like, we love you, man. Like, you know, you don't, you don't need to get a dog to make you feel lonely. I was like, no, I, I want this dog. I want this dog. So what made this day so memorable was not that it was Valentine's Day, but when I brought Nova home, I realized that Nova's arrival all of a sudden introduced danger everywhere whether I wanted it to or not, right? Now, if you've got a pet recently, you'll know exactly what I mean by this. Uh, the arrival of a pet brings a certain danger into your life that wasn't there before, right? Small electronic devices near the ground, these are now expensive chew toys, Right? You have a luxurious rug on your floor that is now a luxurious toilet. Right? You, your bedroom privacy, now all of a sudden you have a public 24-hour open market for your furry friend to come and wake you up at 3 a.m. just to simply say hi. And suddenly, everything that I had worked so hard to build up in my life up until that point, all the structure, all the order, had to be surrendered for the sake of this little 20-pound mini golden doodle, this slobbering machine. I was brought to my knees holding mini salmon bites to get this guy to sit, right, in a high-pitched voice that I have never used up until I had met this dog. But, but you know, um, despite all the new dangers that sort of have entered into my life, uh, I knew at that moment I could never go back the way I'd lived before. And anyone who's had a, a pet for a long time will tell you that they couldn't imagine their lives any differently. 
that fundamentally the arrival of their pet have changed their lives. Even though it's been dangerous and disruptive, it's made their lives so much more full and wonderful. Church family, Jesus' arrival changes everything. And with it comes dangers that you might have never known that existed. So today I simply want to talk about three dangers of Jesus' arrival in our text today in simple points. Uh, The first two are bad dangers. These are the dangers of sin. And the final danger is a good danger, the danger of following Jesus. So two bad dangers, one really good danger. So here we go. First bad danger is that Jesus' arrival is a danger to our ego. Jesus' arrival is a danger to our ego. Now, what do I mean by this? If you look at the first five verses of our text here today, we are told that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And Matthew is painting a picture. It's sort of like a boxing ring announcer sizing up the two opponents that are, that are about to duke it out. And like any boxing, good boxing ring announcer, we, we have to see it, sort of the tail of the tape here, all right? So in, in this one corner, we have Herod. Now, if you've grown up reading the Bible, you will know that Herod's a bad dude. But if you were reading Scripture around Jesus' time, if, if this was uh, sort of Matthew's intended audience, hearing Herod's name is a reminder of one of the biggest egomaniacs who have ever lived. One might argue that Herod had even reason to believe that he was every good as bit as advertised. Herod was considered a great accomplisher in the game of life. He rebuilt armies. He brought peace to lands that he had conquered. He built impressive ports and citadels and fortresses and built pagan worship centers and and even renovated the Jerusalem temple to show that he could play nice with the Jews. He had 10 wives and 15 children and built 15 temples. He had wealth, power, all that you could ask for in a life if you were looking for worldly success and position. He was known throughout the land as Herod the Great. He had the kind of ego where he would name all of these buildings after himself. And his buildings were so magnificent that even Jesus himself had to admit that one of Herod's buildings was great. Mark chapter 13, look it up. But all that success, all that power, all that he held in his hands, Herod knew something in his shrewd brilliance. He knew that all of it was completely fragile. In an instant, someone could come and destroy everything that he had built. Herod realized that in order to remain in the position that he was in, he would have to hold it with an iron fist, and no one, not even God himself, could take it away from him. And who could take it away from him? What great threat could be imposed? Well, here we have in this corner a baby from Nazareth. (laughs) Do you see now how we see how this, Matthew's creating this sharp distinction, how Herod's ego is sort of off the charts here. One birth and the idea that this baby would even grow up to be called king of the Jews, never mind that this baby hasn't even done anything yet, just the mere mention that there is another king to be born puts Herod in a frenzy because Herod realized that it's all at risk and he can't stand it. When the wise men come, to greet Herod, they don't realize what they've said to Herod, that they have come to see the king of the Jews. But, but 
Herod knows. Herod knows that he's at war with another king. And you have to remember, this, had, this was a, a guy in Herod that had no problem killing his wife's family and his own sons just by thinking that way they were a threat to his throne. So, so you know that he has no problem with murdering the innocent. He would do anything to make himself relevant and important in the eyes of others. But of course, I'm not just talking about Herod here, am I? Yeah, I'm talking about you and I. Let's be all honest here for a second. Whether you've been a lifelong Christian or you are exploring the Christian faith, we, we all have an ego problem, don't we? We all are a Herod in one way or another. I mean, just if you don't believe me, ask how many times have you checked your social media today alone, okay? <laughs> right? And if you don't have, if you're those without social media, ask yourself how many times you thought of yourself as better than all those heathens with social media, right? See? I, see? Right? Ego. Ego. And I'll bet that every single one of you, and let's be honest here, if, if I caught you at just the right and vulnerable time, and I said, listen, I'll offer you Herod's life his prestige, his wealth, his posterity, his legacy. And the only thing I tell you is that you just have to simply enter into war with God. I bet I can get more people than you think with that offer. Because all of us, tainted by sin, tainted by our own ego, thinks that Herod has actually lived the well-lived life, don't we? Money, power, fame, prestige. You know, sometimes I wonder in the church's portrayal of Jesus in an effort to make Christmas the most joyous time of the year, um, if we really consider what Jesus' arrival means to our self-importance. We don't think that Jesus' arrival as disruptive because we focus on the hope that is common, and rightly so. But think about this for a moment. If, if Jesus really came on earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and declared that he is at war with sin and at war with anyone else who is trying to establish a kingdom that isn't God's kingdom, shouldn't that make you a little bit worried about how you prioritized and ordered your life? I know it certainly does for me. And if Jesus is coming to bring literal peace to the entire world, to establish a kingdom that will go on forever and ever, that he will live a perfect life to forgive the sins of all who have trusted in his name, and that he will rule and reign forever, shouldn't that put into perspective the accomplishments that you've done in your life? I mean, can you imagine with us trying to have an ego around Jesus? Hey, Jesus, here's what I've done today that was good. And Jesus looks at you and says, oh, that's cute. I created an entire universe with my Father and redeemed you from all of your sins. What, what else have you got for me? Do you see? Herod actually sees something that we might all need to see, that all of us, apart from God's grace, is an egomaniac at war with God. And if Jesus' arrival is true, this means that this is a great danger for the way that you want to view yourself. You know, what's interesting about the following verses in our text today is that Herod takes the idea of the danger of ego even more seriously than you and I. In the following verses, Herod begins to do his research. He begins to read his Bible. And he calls the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and scribes, and he starts asking these guys, hey, where is this king 
going to be born. And they tell him what he was fearing to hear the most. They, they tell him the truth. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the land of Judah, this ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So suddenly, ego has not only put Herod at war with God, but now Herod's ego has put Herod at war with the truth. You see, the chief priests and scribes were advising Herod. They were telling him that the truth of the fact is that the reality of this king, this ruler, would be coming from the exact region of the world where this child was born that these wise men were talking about. That the prophecy would appear to be fulfilled in Bethlehem. And these chief priests and scribes knew the truth of God's word better than anyone else. You see, they knew the promises of 2 Samuel 5, 2, where it says that the kingship would be established in Israel. The promises of Micah 5.2, which foretold that the ruler would come, would be from Bethlehem. So now the danger that's presented in Herod's life, his ego, is do I believe God at his word? Do I believe God at his word? You see, Herod is not given the choice to fashion a God of his own making that he can go to war with. He is confronted with the message of what God actually says about himself and what God is calling Herod to submit himself to. So in, in other words, rather than spending his life building great buildings that would be named after himself, Herod is called to lay them down for the lordship of a child born in a manger. Rather than build up a legacy of his own name and live a life of comfort at the expense of others, he is called to give and surrender all of these to the son of a teenage daughter in a land which Herod conquered. Herod realizes that this would disrupt everything that he decided to live his life for. So what does he do? What choice does he make? He decides to go to war with the truth. You know, the reality of people sometimes is that they don't accept Christianity, and the reality of why people don't accept Christianity is, you know, sometimes they, they don't have a problem with God. They have a problem with what God says. They have a problem with God's truth. But, see, Scripture and in our lives, we, we can't divorce one from the other. If God really is to be God, and if you really believe in Him, then you cannot pick and choose what things God commands for us and what things are optional. Right? You can't say, you know, I really like the fact that God wants us to love one another, but then also say, but you know, I love to gossip and spread lies just because it's fun. You can't say, I love that Jesus says anyone who believes in him will have eternal life, but also forget the part where Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We cannot fashion the truth to our own liking, no matter how much our world and its algorithms try. The truth of God and God himself will be at war with your ego. And that's a good thing. We arrive now to our second danger. If the first danger of Christ's arrival is a danger to our ego, the second bad danger is the danger to our counterfeit religion. To our counterfeit religion. What do I mean by this? Look at verses 7 and 8. Herod pulls the wise men aside and said to them, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, you got to have to give some props to Herod for how shrewd this guy is here. I mean, consider what's happening here. One, Herod wants to know Jesus without really knowing Jesus. 
He sends the wise men and tells them to search diligently to find Jesus. But Herod isn't really interested in, in truly knowing Jesus, is he? He's interested in knowing about Jesus so that he can destroy Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with someone about Christianity and it becomes clear to you with like after a couple of minutes that they're more interested in learning things about Jesus so that they can argue about why they don't believe in Jesus? <laughs> or uh, maybe even more shrewd. Have you ever met someone and been in a conversation with someone who professes to be a Christian, that they love learning about Jesus, but when you look at their life, you kind of see, uh, you're not really reflecting that you live for Jesus. You know, Herod thinks, we think, if I can fake it enough to know enough about Jesus, then, then I can deceive others about my interest in him. And he almost gets away with it, doesn't he? I mean, that's the great danger of our own hearts. You know great things about God, but you continue to live as though God is very small in your life. You who know Scripture, but use it to deceive others, like the serpent in the garden. You who can speak Christianese with the best of scholars and yet are still unrepentant, unforgiving, bitter, blinded by your own ambition. And if there is one stereotype that we know to be too true about Reformed Presbyterians, is that we often know more than we live. Herod's counterfeit religion is that he believes knowledge alone can save him. But his salvation isn't Jesus. It's his own kingdom. But it's more than about posturing knowledge, isn't it? Herod's counterfeit religion also fakes worship. Look again at verse 8 with me in our passage. Herod's promise here sounds encouraging to anyone in evangelism circles, right? The wise men could probably go home and say, we've had a decision for Christ today. Herod says he wants to worship Jesus. But the reality is, is far from the truth. It's fake worship. And I dare I say, this remains one of the biggest problems for the church and the body of Christ and our witness today. I don't want to guilt anyone who's come here today because guilt is not the gospel, but I want to challenge you here and perhaps search your heart. Ask a simple question. Why did you come here this morning? Why? Because it's just what you've always done? Because it's tradition? Uh, because your friends are here and you're worried about what they think about you if you don't show? Um, because you feel as though coming to church or, or maybe even turning on a live stream will check a box off your to-do list this week. Um, because maybe you feel a little bit guilty about a sin you've committed and you feel as though giving an offering will make things right again. Uh, because you enjoy singing. Maybe you enjoy just religious experiences. Um, you know, isn't it strange? We can spend a lifetime worshiping Jesus without ever really worshiping Jesus. The great biblical commentator, Matthew Henry, uh, puts it best in his commentary on this passage. He, he has this great quote. It would be a great tweet if Matthew Henry was alive during Twitter. He says, Many times those who are nearest to the means are furthest from the end. And that's true here. Of Herod. Herod's issue is not in what he is saying outwardly or even about living outwardly. Think about it. 
Herod gives the wise men passage. He lets them continue their search for Christ. He even reads Scripture and claims that he's going to worship Jesus. The problem with Herod is the problem with us, is that the danger of Jesus' arrival is that it calls us to be real. It means that when we say Jesus is on the throne, that means he's the king of every word that we speak. It means that when we say Jesus is the prince of peace, it means that our lives should be about building bridges and throwing grenades. When we say that we worship Jesus, it means the purpose of every hour of our lives. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I speak to you as one who is guilty of this as anyone else. I've been a professional Christian for too long. Being a professional Christian will distance yourself from realizing the wonder of living for Christ. It will make your heart bitter towards other believers. It will put you on the wheel of accomplishment, trying to steal God's glory. And I plead with you today, in your own hearts, fight against that danger of counterfeit religion. When you do, it will help you to remember that you are not the focal point of the story of worship, but that you come to worship God, not just to know things about him or to find a nice life change application, but that you come to worship God simply because God is the only salvation worth having. You worship God because Christ is your only hope in life and death. You worship God because he is awesome, he is mighty, he is omnipotent, he is grace, he is love, he is mercy, he is slow to anger and filled with steadfast love. You worship God for no other reason in your heart, no other agenda. You worship God because God is worthy of it. Jesus' arrival means two things are now in danger your ego, and your counterfeit religion. And that's a good thing because it's going to challenge who your king is and where your kingdom resides. Let's say you avoid these two bad dangers that we've talked about. There is a good danger that will come when we follow Jesus. We learn from this passage that Jesus' arrival for the wise men and for Joseph means our third danger and our last danger here today. And that's Jesus' arrival means living a life of worshipful danger. Worshipful danger. This is a good danger for us. What do we learn from today's text? And who do we learn this from? We don't learn this from King Herod. We don't learn this from the chief priests and scribes who should have known better. Matthew subverts our expectations by telling us that it is the wise men from the east and Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, let's debunk some common Christian myths surrounding these wise men before we begin. First, we don't actually know whether it was three wise men. Right? The Bible doesn't say, given their status, they were actually probably a group of larger, a group of wise men who were able to travel freely together. Right? Second myth debunked. They were probably not kings, but they were probably Gentile scholars. Right? Third, we probably know that they came from eastern Babylonian and came sometime after the birth of Christ, given the travel and the distance. So they probably weren't at the nativity scene. Right? They were probably coming a little bit after. Maybe some scholars even say as late as two years after, the Jesus, after Jesus' birth. And fourth, um, 
Their, their gifts had kingly significance, but they, we, we can't give the symbols that we often give during Christmas. You know, gold means this, frankincense means this, myrrh means gifts. They're just expensive gifts that were given as a treasure. Right, so in other words, you may need to forget everything that you hear, you know, sometimes in our, in our good-natured Christian tradition. Um, but, you know, to be fair, singing We Three Kings from Orient are is admittedly a lot more catchy than singing We Undefined Number of Undescribed Wise Men from Eastern Babylonia. So there you go. Moving on. Why is Matthew writing about these three men? Or these men. Not even three. These men. See, even I'm trapped in it, right? Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience in his account of Jesus' gospel. And by starting off with saying that it's wise men from the east in chapter 2, there should be an immediate discomfort to his Jewish audience. These wise men were unclean Gentiles. They practiced the pagan practice of astrology, a practice that's decried in the Old Testament books of Isaiah, Daniel, and Jeremiah. They were not members of the Jewish temple. They were in no stretch to be considered holy and clean men to approach the king of the Jews. So see, already there's this bias towards their worldview, their lifestyle, and even the limited knowledge that these wise men had about the Messiah. Uh, Why are these guys the hero in chapter 2? These are unworthy men. But what do we see from these magi? They were willing to give up everything to worship Jesus. They were willing to travel to dangerous lands, to sacrifice their own wealth and possessions, to risk being beheaded by Herod the Great by disobeying his orders. They had to change their known course of travel to a different, probably more riskier and dangerous one. And they do all of this just so that they can get a glimpse of Christ. Jesus' arrival brings about a great danger to those whom he calls to himself, even those that we consider to be outside of the camp. And this danger can disrupt everything that you think you know about what you're supposed to do with your life and where God calls you to go. This danger should make you think more about the goals of your life that you are trying to accomplish instead and and start thinking about what is the gospel actually calling me to live for? Uh, I remember thinking about this when I was uh, doing ministry in my father's church. Uh, it was a church in Maryland that was situated in a county called Howard County. Um, now, if you, if you don't know about Howard County, um, it's ranked by Time Money Magazine as the best place to live in America, number one. Right? It consistently ranks in sort of the top five best places to live in in all these different magazines and school districts and all of these things. Um, and it has like an average median income that's like double the most of most states. Um, and it was ranked just, I believe last year, it was ranked actually the safest place to live in America. But with all of that comes the dangers of doing ministry in this kind of context, which is and what Pastor Ross Lester describes as the cult of comfort, the cult of performance, the cult of security. And I remember doing ministry there and realizing that we needed to foster opportunities for our youth ministry kids about how to see things that were outside of their own bubble. And so I I called a friend of mine from seminary who was serving in Camden, New Jersey. (laughs) Now, 
Camden, New Jersey was just less than a two-hour drive from us. But if you know anything about Camden, New Jersey, uh, you'll know it's nothing like Howard County, Maryland. (laughs) This is the most drug-infested, crime-infested city in America. It's the most violent city per capita. And I just asked him the question, how can we partner with you all? How can we partner with your church? And as we were coming together with ideas and thinking of of a plan, he actually preempted a question that every parent at my church was going to ask about bringing these youth kids there. And, and that question was, of course, how do we guarantee our kids' safety when they're serving down there? And I'll never forget what he said to me. And I want to pass it along to you. He said to me this, um, John, I, I can't guarantee the safety of your kids here while they're serving our church. Now, we can take every measure to ensure that they will be under our supervision, that they will be guided by our members, but, but we cannot guarantee their safety no more than the gospel can guarantee our safety. The only thing that we can tell you is that you all need to pray about God's will in bringing you here because I guarantee you that while it n- might not be without danger, the safest place to be is in the hands of God's will. I never forgot that quote. Jesus' arrival means that it will be dangerous to worship him and follow him. But for the Christian, this is the only way we can live for him. For the wise men, it means meeting the Savior at the end of a long journey just to, to be able to give him their treasures of the world to show them that Christ is the greatest treasure of their lives. For Joseph, it's fleeing Herod the Great and moving to the pagan nation of Egypt, waiting for the day where he could return. It's a bunch of youth group kids traveling to Candom and realizing that there is a beautiful and redemptive world happening in what others might call sketchy or dangerous. It's thousands of testimonies from Christian martyrs in every nation on this globe that paved the way through their sacrifice so that many would come to know who Jesus is and the greatness of worshiping Christ and even gave up their lives to do so. It's Jesus himself who placed himself in the position of greatest danger on the cross, facing death and torment and the weight of judgment for sin for you and I. Jesus looking at that danger, looking head on and saying to the Father, into your hands and commit my spirit. Church family, Jesus' arrival is the most dangerous way to live life. But it's the kind of danger that's the best danger to live for. I mean, you want a thrill, you want an adrenaline rush, you want a life that is exceptional and wonderful and amazing. Live for Jesus. Now, I know that might have scared some of you who are very protective and very conflict-adverse and want to run away from everything, so let me flip this for you. You want to be safe? You want to be protected? You want a peace and stability? Then live for Jesus. Live the dangerous life that Jesus is calling, to live, is, is calling you to live because that is the only source of safety there for you. I mean, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that anything you place your trust and security to keep you safe, protected, and peace other than Christ is actually fragile because it could be taken away from you in an instant, can't it? Here's the reality, and this might be the best thing about what the danger of arrival. 
Jesus' arrival means that all which was undone due to sin, all that was corrupted in the world, every injustice is now fading away. Herod the Great is now just a footnote in the grand story of Jesus. The evil of this world, the pride of life, the destruction of sin, the injustice of systematic and individual sin, these are all dying because Jesus has come and will come again. And when we face ourselves with the truth of God's words in this, we will come to realize that he is the best danger that could come into our life. This is the danger that destroys ego and false religion and puts you in a place of humility and authentic faith. This is the danger that arrives to tell you that the joy that you think you are living will only be found in living for his kingdom. And he invites you to be a part of his kingdom. This is worth surrendering everything you are placing it into, your, your, your life into. So my family in Christ, I hope that you will realize Jesus changes everything. His arrival changes everything that we can surrender all that we have because there we find the greatest safety that we could ever know in the arms of our loving Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the arrival of your Son. We thank you that it changes us. It makes us to pursue a life of humility, a life of authenticity, a life that surrenders all that we have, risks it all, because your son has risked it all for us. Lord, may this change the way we live. May we truly worship Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.